Western Michigan University. Wow. Just telling you, you were a terrible yeah. And I said, you know what, Dad? I'm going to stay, and I'm going to prove him wrong, and I'm going to prove myself right. Welcome, everyone, to the Driving Vision Podcast brought to you by the Ziegler Auto Group. I'm your host, Sam Dark, and here with me, Auto Group Director of Talent Development, Mike Van Ryan. Welcome, Mike. Hey, thanks, Sam. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, like it if you do, and leave a comment. Hey, everybody. Today on the Driving Vision Podcast, we're back in the Ziegler locker room with Minnesota head football coach and friend of the Ziegler Auto Group, PJ Fleck. Joining the interview is someone Coach Fleck calls the greatest leader he's ever coached. Today, you'll hear how that leader and quarterback went from 1-11 and 11 to an undefeated regular season, but also how that turnaround almost never happened. As the QB admitted to Coach Fleck for the first time today, he almost decided to transfer before Coach Fleck's vision pulled him back to Western Michigan. Well, after that, we join an athlete who is literally driving his own vision. Ziegler sponsored NASCAR race car driver Josh Balicki. Hear Josh recount a successful race last weekend in Atlanta and what lies ahead next in Texas. But first, let's go backstage and in the locker room with Coach Fleck. All right, everybody. Hey, at the Ziggler Auto Group, welcome. And our podcast attendees and listeners, welcome to the Driving Vision Podcast. So today with us, Minnesota head football coach, P.J. Fleck, welcome, P.J. Thanks for having us. And Ziegler sales manager and former quarterback, Western Michigan, Zach Terrell. Thanks for having me. So, P.J., you were just in the locker room with us here at the Ziegler Auto Group. What does it mean to you to be here, back in this place where so much of your career began, where you were the youngest football coach in NCAA history? Yeah, it's an honor to be back. You know, I mean, known Aaron for close to a decade now and watched him build Ziegler into what it is today. And there's a lot of parallels with football and building programs and just like building business. I mean, it's all culturally related, teamwork related, and then individual related, how you can make yourself a better part of that team and that culture. Culture and so many parallels, and uh, that's why I'm back. And he's always he's always been a really good friend, and uh, we get a chance to do this quite often. Coach, you actually have an unusual relationship with the Ziegler Auto Group. One I only recently found out about. You were introduced to Ziegler single and left married. Will you tell us uh, uh, how, how you met your wife? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I got a chance to meet her uh, through Aaron, and you know, I, I always told Aaron, I said, I'm not going to be the one to ask her out. You need uh, kind of subliminal messages <laughs> through Aaron that somehow got to her that she'd have to ask me out because well, I was one in eleven. I was divorced. I was nobody wanted to talk to me in the town and I still remember one of our first dates she came by picked me up said get in the car and I said you do know who I am right like you do understand like who I am and are you sure you want to be seen with me and uh, we spent pretty much every day together since so did you uh, buy a car yeah I think I did okay. yeah one I bought numerous from the Ziggler, but not, but just one from her. Good. So, PJ, tell us the story of recruiting Zach or bringing Zach to Western Michigan, and what was Zach like in the beginning? He's an incredible leader within the Ziggler Auto Group. Tell us about the beginning of that. Yeah, he hates the story. First of all, I didn't recruit him. Uh, okay. He was there when I got there, but I remember you seeing, Yeah, you had to re-recruit everybody, because yeah. when you show up as a head coach, there's everybody tied to a different staff, and right, wrong, or indifferent, they're just not there anymore, and here comes this whole new culture, and culture's connecting people, and I just have a different way of connecting people than and the guy before, the guy after, whoever. It's just, that's what cultures do. They connect people. And I remember sitting down with our entire team, talking to all of them. And I remember watching Zach. And, and I don't know if it was a little bit more of motivation, a little bit more to see if I could just see what he was made of. But I remember calling him in my office saying, you know what, I don't think you're a very good leader. And he looked at me like, how dare you? I'm a really good leader. And I said, well, I, just, uh, I don't think you're good at this, 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 and this. And I wanted to see how, he, how he'd handle that. And he processed it all. And whether he thought he believed me or not, you could see him process it. And you could see him say, you know what, I'm going to, if that's how this coach sees it, I'm going to look at myself, see where I can get better. 
continue to be me, but be a better version of me. And he turned out to be probably the greatest leader I've ever coached. And not because of us, but because of him. Uh, but I still remember that first conversation. He's an unbelievable leader, but I needed something to see if I could challenge him and see how he was going to be able to respond because I've only had two quarterbacks play for me in 10 years as a head football coach. And But to watch him after a 1-11 season go take you know Western Michigan University and, and the city of Kalamazoo on his shoulders and take him to 13-0 and and 13-1 and to the Cotton Bowl and lose to Wisconsin, but a MAC championship, an undefeated season. And to watch that came from the ashes of 1-11 and and from him growing as a person always and he's deep in his spiritual faith and always has been always will be but he also checks himself every day and makes sure that he can serve and give more than he did the day before and do it better than he did before and it was no different from our first conversation that we had about being an average leader I would call it because he was still pretty good yeah. but I, I had to find a way to be able to see if this guy was going to be the quarterback of the future it was crazy about that and I don't even know if I've ever told you this but I was planning on transferring to Miami of Ohio <laughs> oh really so, I never heard that and one before what was crazy about that is I then when he challenged me I've almost probably stayed more out of just being stubborn, out of sheer will, just saying, hey, you know what, I'm going to stay and I'm going to prove this guy wrong. How close were you? My dad had wanted me to leave. My own father was like, you're leaving. You're leaving Western Michigan University. The wow. coach is telling you you're a terrible leaver. Yeah. And I said, you know what, dad, I'm going to stay and I'm going to prove him wrong and I'm going to prove myself right. And it all ended up working. Didn't look so good at first because we went 1-11 shortly after. But there's one thing that you as a leader that I think is special that is often overlooked, and it's your consistency. Talk about how you are so consistent as a person, your messaging, and then how you come across to your teammates and your players and those who look up to you on a, on a daily basis. How are you so consistent? Yeah, I think we talked about this earlier. Just, I'm really good at being myself, you know, and I think too many people, they're inconsistent because they don't know who they are and they don't know how to act and they don't know what to do. If you're just yourself in every situation that comes your way and you're a better version of yourself the next day, then you can build that trust with that consistency, that time and that proof that's truly needed. And I'm not saying that I'm really good at it, but I know who I am and I do everything I can to be a better version of myself tomorrow than I was today and be better today than I was yesterday. And I think too many times we, we try to be what the outside society wants us to be or what a head coach should look like or what a business executive should do. And instead of just running the company or the organization or the team, how we feels fit. Because when you're you, everything else falls in place. You don't have to try to be somebody that you're not and then get stuck in a lot of different situations on what do I do next? If you're just yourself and you get yourself the right people that bring the best out of you, then you can have a ton of success. And the reason why I'm here is just whatever it is, is I've had so many great people around me, including him. But you saw in that 1-11 season that this guy was going to turn that whole program around. So that's an interesting point. Human nature, we want to make snap decisions about people. From the outside looking in at the end of that 1-11 season, you saw losers, right? You saw a team that could not win, that human nature is to project that loss way far ahead and say you'll never win. How do you see things how they truly are, how they really are? How did you see the talent? How did you know for yourself that wasn't you and turn it around? That's a huge leadership lesson. Well, I think it's giving definition of substance to words we hear every single day. Not that everybody has to say the same thing, but we have cultural definitions that are baseline for a simple word, failing. Right? Well, we all fail. Every single day we fail, but we define it as growth. You have to grow, you have to fail. You have to understand what failing feels like to grow. And Zach found 11 ways, right? And found 11 ways to not find a way to win. And now he had that substance and had that wherewithal to know what didn't work and why it didn't work. Because we all know it didn't work, but why didn't it work? So failing is growth and failure is quit because that was the biggest test for him was once he failed, was the response going to be growth or was the response going to be quit? And once he responded to grow, 
know that was his DNA. That's from his mother and father, and that's from his spiritual life. He wasn't built to do anything else. The whole team did it because it's not about the message that I have. That's what where the culture set definition is. But then it's the messengers who take that and run with it. And that's why we talk about bad teams, nobody leads, average teams, coaches lead, elite teams, a players lead. Well, that first year, they couldn't lead because they didn't know anything. They were all learning. They were all finding their way. But that same young team that went 1-11 ended up, for the majority, the majority of those guys took us to 13-0. To but that 1-11 was necessary. And I always tell people, like, coaches should always have to go through, like, a 0-12 or 1-11 season to start. <laughs> Wasn't and it then, painful, though? I mean, oh, awful. That's... <laughs> and, but, that, but, it scar, but it builds you. It takes you one of two ways. No, you said scarring, and I think that's right, right? But it does. But I think scars are necessary in all of us. We yeah. all have scars. Our hearts, our minds, our souls, our bodies. Yeah. But it's the response to those and yeah. the understanding of that's your journey. Like, that's how you made it to where you are. Yeah. And not be scared of that or worried about that, but be thankful for what we have because too many people aren't grateful for the result. So as a coach in that uh, 1-11 season, you talk about leadership is turning a roadblock into a speed bump. What are some of the speed bumps you created that year to help? I mean, you say it's player-led, but the coach inspired, right? Uh, what are some of those roadblocks that you turned into speed bumps? Well, I think it's empowering your people to know what battles to pick and which ones they can figure out on their own. And when it's early in the process, you're solving everything for everyone because you're setting the tone and the definition and the standard of what it should look like. And that's exhausting. And it takes a lot of energy away from you, the leadership team, and everybody else. Where once everybody knows exactly what to expect, right? Frustration comes when your reality doesn't meet your expectation. Yeah. But once you actually understand what the expectation is and the reality of exactly where you are, the frustration gets limited. And we were very real with our team. We didn't talk about a championship in, in year one. We didn't, we, there was no way I thought we were going to win a championship, so I never mentioned the word. Yeah. We just talked about get better today, right? Change your best today. And that was it. Now, come year four, we started talking a little bit about championships. Yeah. And we talked about what that team was going to take. And what happened was the responsibility and the ownership was put on the players where less of the day-to-day easy, small, tiny, minuscule decisions were done by, they were done more by the players than they were by the coaches, which gave them the ability to make those decisions, which empowered the players to have ownership in the team. Which is what you talked about today, which is truthful listening, right? Becoming elite and change is part of truthful listening. Zach, at what point in your college career did you realize this is going to be special? Like, we're going from this struggling team to elite. I think after the second season, when we finally went eight and five, and you got to see some tangible results. You know, I think that's one thing you said, even when you talked about it today, is that they see, you need to see success. Sometimes you need to see what it looks like. And we went one and 11. There was really no success at all, right? There was a lot of learning from yeah. our failure. But over time, as you began to grow, we started to see what success looked like. And then we kind of had that blueprint set, hey, this is what we want more. How can we get more? And that's one thing that he does a great job of of setting a vision and giving a blueprint and, you know, even going into our last year, just flashing on a screen, a Cotton Bowl logo. And none of us knew what that meant, you know, before the season even started and he didn't even talk about it. But he just flashed up there that subliminal messaging and vision way before we'd even thought ourselves of it being possible. You uh, used that quote, using cultural... Cultural ways to teach lifetime lessons. Yes. You talk about finding cultural ways to teach lifetime lessons, the or... Right? 
flashing pictures of the Cotton Bowl logo. Where did you get that from as a leader? How, how did you learn that? How did you develop this idea of creating a vision that was so sticky for these kids? That well, I'm they, not very smart, first of all. Uh, not so true. Not you true. have to be able to keep things very simple for me to get it. I have an elementary education background in terms of teaching. I was a sixth grade social studies teacher. So you've got to teach when you're teaching sixth grade or teaching elementary school. It's teaching at the simplest form. You've got to get all these people that are distracted by anything, fly on the wall to a crayon dropping to, you know, somebody picking their nose to really focus in on and capture their attention for 50 minutes on a topic that maybe they don't want to do. And same thing for a football team. There's so much brain space for young people these days. And you want to make sure that whatever they do and whatever they listen to, whatever they hear, whatever it's important in their lives as young people, you incorporate that and intertwine that into your teachings day to day. They have to do with football, life, being a great husband, great father one day. You have to incorporate all that. I mean, I'm 41 years old, so I'm not their age, but it's my job to find a way to know what they listen to so I can incorporate that into my message for the day. What they like to watch on TV. I might not watch it, but I'm going to find a way to build my team meeting around it. What's popular in current events and what they do. How to be able to use a social platform to really reach their minds because their 17 to 22-year-old mind is different than my 41-year-old mind. But it doesn't matter what I know. It only matters what they know. And if they don't get it, it doesn't matter how much I know. So that's the whole culture is about. It's finding a way to get everybody to understand it and they understand it better and want to come back tomorrow even more ready to learn than they were the day before. So Zach, how has that, how have those leadership lessons under PJ Fleck all those years ago made you a better leader today in business? How have you applied those to a sales manager at Ziegler Auto Group? (laughs) In every way. I mean, even from the way that I talk to the phrasing that I use and the way that I influence the people that I'm with every day, not only, you know, people that work for me, but our customers and throughout my life. I mean, I've used, the program is still instilled. I still know all the pieces of it and I still use all of them and it it, it travels with me everywhere I go and that's why you've seen so much success from him and every place he's gone and been and he'll continue to do that is because he gets people to buy in and he doesn't just change them on the field he changes them in the classroom he changes them in their own personal lives and makes them better all around people and then you know he gets some of the benefits on the field but everybody benefits from it and that's why it's so special for us to to have him at Ziegler today thank you so much for being here and, uh, and working with the Ziegler Auto Group It was awesome to have you in the training room. The energy that you bring and the passion, unrivaled, right? It's like uh, like everybody had a Red Bull today. Yeah, without (laughs) having the Red Bull. (laughs) So thank you, Coach PJ Fleck. Anything else to say? Any other words to the Ziggler Auto Group? No, row the boat, scout him out, go Gophers, and go Ziggler. I like it. Thank you, sir. You got it. Hey, appreciate it. All right, Mike. So today with us is NASCAR race car driver, Ziggler sponsor, Josh Balicki. Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you guys for having me. I always look forward to these. So Josh, we absolutely love having you on and it's an exciting day to be here because we get to do a little catch up from our last uh, conversation. So we talked about initially your huge success, ninth place finish at Daytona, including pole position for many, that lead position for many, many laps some adversity and struggle through the next two, right? In both California and in Las Vegas. And Josh, an interesting result this past weekend. So tell us first off where you began the race uh, this weekend in Atlanta. Yeah, so I know that we had talked about California and Vegas. Both, you know, we kind of struggled at. My first two races in the Cup Series with Spire Motorsports, Vegas was Ziggler's first sponsored race. And I struggled there, you know, to find comfort in the car. Uh, These cars, I'm still learning. And Josh, it's a brand new car for those who don't know, right? This is a car that not only have you never driven, 
but no one's driven, right? It's, it's a whole new specification, a whole new type of car. That is correct, especially at the tracks that we were at too. Fontana in California, you know, that was my first race with Spire. That was a tough learning curve, not only for me, but I mean, veterans like Kevin Harvick, I mean, Ross Chastain, those guys took big hits at Fontana. I mean, literally right in practice, right first lap of practice, Kevin Harvick made a pretty big mistake. And, you know, that just shows how hard these cars are to drive. And if a veteran like Kevin Harvick, who's been in the sport for 20 years, has those challenges, you know, a guy like myself, who's only been in the sport for four or five years, you know, it tells me that I might struggle too. So we did struggle yeah. a little bit in Fontana in California and Vegas. So going to Atlanta, there were a lot of unknowns. Atlanta, it was a brand new repave, but not only a repave, it was a restructure of the racetrack, not a complete reconfiguration, uh, but it was a reprofile. They actually shrunk the corners, made the corners tighter. So the track used to be, I think 50 or 55 feet wide. Now they shrunk it to 40 feet wide. So you could barely fit three cars on there. They added banking too. So they added banking, kind of reprofiled the track. And we showed up with a completely different horsepower downforce package than what we raced at the past couple weekends. So they took downforce, they added downforce, I'm sorry, and they took away horsepower. So they made it really like a momentum type race where you needed to be in the draft. And you saw a lot of tight racing, but, you know, going into the weekend, we weren't really sure what to expect. So Friday was our only practice day. Unfortunately, it rained out all Friday. It rained, it canceled all on-track activity, which was unfortunate for us because we needed to practice. And as a result of that, NASCAR deemed that practice was more important than qualifying. They canceled qualifying and they replaced it with practice which was great for us in, in one sense of we're going to get to experience this car on this track. We're going to see what this car drives like. It was bad for us because they canceled qualifying and I had missed the Phoenix race. I didn't race the Phoenix race. It wasn't my race. So we started second to last, right? Wow. Right in front of Greg <laughs> wow. So that, that was cool to start right next to Greg Biffle, um, who's, uh, who's a veteran <laughs> sport, but it also put us in a pretty deep hole. You know, we knew that this race would be pretty chaotic. So, Josh, I stood there with you. I stood there with you on the track as we did the national anthem at the very beginning. And there you are, the very last, you know, you're at the end of the lineup. What was going through your mind as you were looking ahead at the cars in front of you and and really the race that lie ahead uh, as we were doing the uh, national anthem and some of those intros? Yeah, I don't I don't really get nervous much, but there was definitely a lot of nerves at the beginning of that race leading into the race, because there were so many unknowns. How's this yeah. car going to drive? How's my car going to drive when there's 35 other cars in front of me? You know, all those cars that creates dirty wake. It's like a bolt. You know, there's so much dirty wake and dirty air behind those race cars. Well, yeah. I'm 36 in line. What's my car going to do? How's it going to drive? Yeah. So there was a lot of uncertainty going into the race. Luckily, our car was phenomenal. I mean, Inspire Motorsports gave me a great car and I had some practice. You know, we practiced on Saturday in the pack, in the draft. And we, we were fast. We had a good car. We could use that kind of to our advantage. You know, we, we knew that we weren't really behind the eight ball in terms of speed. We knew we had a car capable of racing with the main pack. I mean, with the, the guys that are winning races. So we actually use that to our advantage. You know, we could kind of play the race in our, our strategy, let the race come to us. And that's what my crew chief and I talked about before the race, you know, letting the race come to us. We're already starting at the back. We know if we try to make our way to the top 10 or top five in the first couple of laps or first half the race, even that could create a mess, you know, because a lot of those guys up there, they race really, really aggressively. So we just came into the race with the mindset of letting the race come to us. And that's exactly what we did. I mean, I think in the first five or 10 laps, though, we did pass 10 cars and we were yes. comfortably around 25th. Fourth for, for for a while. So talk to us about your lap and your pace times as compared to the leaders and those that ended up winning. You posted some amazing lap times, right? That must have given you some confidence early on. It did. I mean, f I, I want to say for the first 
half of the race, my teammate and I had the first and second fastest laps of the race, which was really cool for our Spider Motorsports team. Uh, but it, yeah, it gave me a bunch of confidence knowing that I have a car that's driving identical and just as fast as the guys who are up front. You know, the guys, Kyle Larson, who won the championship last year, you know, Chase yeah. Briscoe, who won last week's race. You know, I have a car very similar to those guys. So that gave me a lot of confidence. In the Ziggler world, we know it's about resourcefulness. It's not about resources. So you couldn't do anything about where you began at that point. That was cast well before the race began. Yep. But talk to us about the resourcefulness it took to go from second to last up to where you ultimately finished and for a while running top 10. Yeah, my crew chief did a great job with strategy. He got kind of got us off strategy. So we were able to make up a lot of positions just during pit stops. And that got us, yeah, we yeah. were in the top 10. We restarted in the top 10 once. And, you know, for me to race in the top 10 in the Cup Series, I haven't done that very often. And we had a car capable of yeah. doing it. Uh, unfortunately, I actually drove into the corner a little bit too fast. And the front of the car, the front tires lost grip, and I just kind of washed up the racetrack. It was a learning experience for me, for sure. And then I got put three wide, yeah. and then basically at that point, I knew that if I try to blend back into this line, I could create a big mess, and I'm just going to play it safe. Luckily, I did that because, honestly, five or ten laps after that, that happened, there's a big wreck. I think somebody up front had a right front tire go down. Let's talk about that wreck because it's a great picture. We'll post it in the notes. So you see the Hendrick car completely sideways, yeah. four or five different cars sideways, and you're right in the middle of it. It reminded me of Daytona <laughs> where a car flipped completely over you. What lap did that happen in? And then what were you thinking as you saw this unfold? And and again, the resourcefulness that it took to get through it. Yeah, there were a couple really close ones. And the two that stand out, that's the first one. That all happened, you know, right where I just was. You know, I made the slight mistake and I dropped back. And I did it kind of at the perfect time where I, was, I wasn't I was in that wreck. Otherwise, I think, honestly, I would have been right there with the Hendrick car. You know, when that happened, all you can do is try to find a hole and also make sure you try not to get hit from behind. You know, these cars this year had yeah. really good brakes. And if you guys listen on the radio, I probably said, you know, I didn't get in the wreck because of how good our brakes are. Uh, we have big brakes yeah. this year because we have bigger tires. And that allowed me to slow down really fast, downshift. And I thought for sure I was going to hit somebody. Luckily, the wreck happened right as pit road started. So I was able to kind of turn down the track and drive down pit road. Three or four other cars actually drove down pit road. Had I gone straight and had there not been pit road there, I definitely, I think I would have been in that wreck. So, you know, it was kind of just, uh, it was the perfect time on the racetrack. And I was in the perfect position to kind of just steer myself away from the wreck and go down pit road. Had that pit road not been there though, I think I would have definitely been in that. So <laughs> it's just really quick decision-making you need to make in the, uh, in the cup series when, I mean, you're going 185 miles per hour in the draft, 190 at the fastest. Yeah. When a wreck happens, you have a split second. After Daytona, I've learned quite a bit about wreck avoidance. You know, you saw the same thing happen at Daytona. Yeah. And I think, uh, yeah. I think my spotter helped me with that too. My spotter did a great job. So ultimately you finished 19th, which is when you think about where you started versus where you finished is an incredible result, right? 16th. 16th. Uh, or 16th. I'm no, sorry. Boy. Even better. Apologies. <laughs> That's awesome. Even better. So it's interesting. Had you began 5th or 10th, yeah. the effort you expended and it took to go from the back to the front would have had you in a winning position. So talk to us about the next race. What lies ahead and what's your strategy going into that? Yeah. So this is one this weekend coming up. Uh, Ziggler Auto Group back on the car as a primary sponsor. We're in Texas at the Formula One track. So this weekend is a race unlike any other racetrack we've been to this year. It's a road course. You turn left and right. It's a long track, almost four miles, uh, lots of corners. I mean, this is our busiest track we go to. It falls right into my background, my background in sports car racing on road courses. So that's how I got my start in NASCAR. I was a substitute driver just for one race in 2016 on a road course. 
And that led to so mm-hmm. many more opportunities. But I'd say in NASCAR, I'm relatively known as a road course driver. Um, so Sunday, nice. it's going to be exciting in the Cup Series with uh, with Ziggler on board. It's going to be an awesome race for us. I, I think I think we can better our top 16. What time does that start, Josh? That's 3.30 p.m. Eastern time on Sunday, and that's live on Fox. All right. So everybody, the Driving Vision podcast, we will be that's there right. live. We will be relaying all the information, and uh, we're excited to see how Josh does on that day. So Mike, you have some questions for Josh on hero cards. I do. You know, Sam, we love growth and development. We love to learn at Ziggler. And I got a bunch of these hero cards floating around Ziggler. I see them everywhere, right? So I got to ask yes. you, Josh, who is one of your heroes? One of my heroes. Wow. I um, Growing up, it was always Jeff Gordon. Yep. Uh, he, he won a lot of races. He was he was fairly young. When I was five or six, he was still relatively young in his career. Michael Schumacher is another one. He's a Formula One driver. He was winning races. So I think looking back at both of those guys, Jeff Gordon, Michael Schumacher, when I was young, they were winning races. Obviously, that's what I want to do. I want to win races. But I also look at my dad too. I mean, my dad, he wasn't a professional driver. He was a businessman and he's helped me get to the point where I am right now. And without him, honestly, I mean, he got me started with go-karts when I was young. He, um, he taught me just... All the skill on the business side too, you know. I I still call him three or four times a week, just ask him questions, ask him about yeah. everything. But I would definitely say those three. That's great. And fast forward, and Sunday, Jeff Gordon is announcing a race that you're driving, and how cool is that? It is cool. I mean, I have a lot of heroes, but it's it's cool that NASCAR allows some of these drivers to to stay in the sport. You know, Clint Boyer, Jeff Gordon, but even like Greg Biffle. You know, Greg Biffle's been around for a long time, and I raced with him very closely. He was yeah. racing on Sunday. Yeah. I raced with him in Las Vegas a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so I think that's what's unique about our sport. You can race with some of your heroes. Yeah, that's so cool. Talk to us about when you're getting in the car, getting in that cockpit, getting ready to go, and your mindset. How do you get your mindset right before you start a race? Yeah, so race day, there's always a lot of things going on, a lot of appearances, meet and greets, team meetings, you know, we're strategizing, trying to go over what we think the race is going to pan out to. The one time that everything kind of calms down, and I look back to, I mean, Atlanta, you have a lot of nerves. You put the helmet on, you get in the race car, all those nerves go away. Honestly, you feel you kind of feel free. And it sounds weird. You know, a lot of people think that that might be the most nerve wracking time. On grid, they tell you, gentlemen, start your engines. Well, you get in the car first, obviously. And there's a moment where it's just kind of silent. You know, you do your radio check, but you're sitting in the car with your headset in and uh, your helmet on and it's just quiet. You know, the car's not running and that's when you kind of feel at peace. But leading up to that, it's definitely, it's busy. It's nerve wracking. Uh, you're thinking about everything going on. While you're signing autographs, while you're saying hi to fans, <laughs> while you do the driver intros, it's, it's a lot to juggle, but I, I love it. I mean, I think that's what makes our sport so unique, and for all professional sports have that too. That's awesome. Well, Josh, we are so pumped to uh, have you represent the Ziegler Auto Group name. You know, it was exciting, a connection that a lot of people don't know. You've also got the Spire name on your jersey. That is the team that provides the car. So near and dear to the Ziegler Auto Group is also Michigan State, a football team or a basketball team and football team that we support. And, you know, Sunday, not only did folks see you driving in Atlanta, but you also were able to watch Michigan State play Duke and unfortunately had an incredible game and nearly pulled it out. But at a place where a Spire owned hockey team plays, right, Josh? Yeah. Spire has uh, many different entities. One of them is as a hockey team. So it's uh, it's really cool to uh, to be a part of an organization like that. They can pull so many different, I mean, athletes and represent athletes as well. So it's, uh, yeah, it's yep. definitely unique. It's awesome. So we're excited for uh, Texas. 
Stay tuned, everybody. We will stream live on all our social media outlets. And next week on the uh, next edition of Driving Vision Podcast, Josh, appreciate you being here, Mike. And let's go race. Thanks, guys. Good luck, Josh. Thank you, Stan. Thank you, Mike. A big thank you to PJ Flex, Zach Terrell, and Josh Balicki for contributing to this week's episode. And a thanks to you for tuning in weekly and making us one of the most listened to business podcasts on Apple. Until next week, how are you driving vision today?